BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where T is for the living daylights the 1987 james bond film which introduced timothy dalton as 007 my name is tom butler and joining me as we pop aboard the ferris wheel to explore dalton's bond debut he's neither playboy or tennis pro he's mr brendan duffy hello uh, we were supposed to have a special guest this week but uh due to technical issues he is no longer able to join us but we will be using his notes so thank you very much mark harrison uh, doing a sterling job as always. But this episode will kick off a mammoth run of six film specials uh, in a row. Um, so we will have The Living Daylights, followed by The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, The World Is Not Enough, Thunderball, Tomorrow Never Dies, um, to get us through the next six weeks. Hopefully we'll be able to stick to one a week. It's already proving more difficult <laughs> than we thought. So don't be surprised if there are uh, maybe a few changes to the schedule along the way. But um Let's kick things off, Brendan, with a quick chat about uh, The Living Daylights and your experiences with it. Uh, are you a big fan? I am g- getting into it more and more. Um, yeah. I thought it's only recently I've started watching it because obviously the podcast and watched it at the cinema in the summer. Um, before that, then I kind of ignored it. It's a you know it's not one that really got screened on bank holidays on the TV. Um, 
But every time I see it, there's there's a lot to appreciate, and uh, I just think Timothy Dalton puts in a great performance as well. He really does, yeah. And I, I think I'm the same. I think I sort of neglected it a little bit over the years, but um, it is one that I uh, am enjoying more and more every time I see it, and especially when it was on the big screen over the summer. Mm. Um, I just sort of it really gelled for me. Um, I always thought it was a little bit slow, but I think on the big screen it really, really does work, and um, there's a lot. A lot of really great elements on it and um let's not forget this is a really important film in the series it's the last of the cubby broccoli films um sorry license to kill is the last of the cubby broccoli films but the, the, it's getting to that era isn't it mm. this feels like the last of the of the big ones because it's john barry's uh, last time um cubby's probably most hands-on final film i would say because he was sort of quite poorly on license to kill i think yeah and also um, it's, it sticks to the bond formula whereas license to kill doesn't so this this is like the long the last that feels like a like a last classic of the, yeah of the true true classics yeah indeed indeed so the uh, synopsis for living daylights armed with razor sharp instincts a gadget laden aston martin and his license to kill Agent 007 must battle diabolical arms merchants who are united in a terrifying conspiracy for world domination that may be linked to the Soviet military high command. But let's kick things off, as we always do, talking about what the world of cinema was like in 1987. Well, I'm just going to take you back to 1985 for a bit because there's um, there's a bit of issues with the film licensing um, due to Turner Broadcasting. They wanted to buy MGM and United Artists, so this meant things became complicated. Ted Turner, he saw the value of MGM's film library, so um, he wanted to get get hold of that. So he did. Um, March uh, 1986, the deal was finalised, $1.5 billion, and uh, the company was renamed MGM Entertainment. But Ted Turner, he sold MGM's United Art- Artists back to Kirk Kukoran for $480 million. Um, and with Ted Turner unable to find the financing for the rest of the deals because the the debt that he'd taken on all of his companies. Uh, August 26th, 1986, Ted Turner was forced to sell MGM's production and distribution assets to United Artists for $300 million dollars. Um, with the MGM studio lot and lab facilities sold uh, as well in in this. Now, why does this matter to Bond? Well, it's just more background shenanigans that we've seen throughout the story of the Bond franchise. And and luckily it didn't affect uh, this film too much. But Cubby, you know, he, he didn't like the way that these companies dealt with businesses like you know with the business like this and didn't seem to have any care for the product they're actually making you know the films um and so 1987 it's the 25th anniversary for the franchise so you know silver anniversary a, a pretty big deal at the time um lots of bond everywhere as as we've had this year with the 60th um but it's it's crazy that it was only its 25-year anniversary at that point. It, it's more fry, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely. Um, in terms of the Academy Awards, um, we had Sean Connery. So he, he'd won for Best Supporting Actor um, for his role in The Untouchables. 
So staying ever relevant. I mean, this was where Sean Connery was having a bit of his his renaissance, wasn't he? He was really churning some good stuff out at this point. Um, But in terms of the box office takings, any guesses for the top three? Oh, 87. Oh, no. Well, number three, we've got Beverly Hills Cop 2. Okay, yeah. Number two, we've got Fatal Attraction. And mm. number one, I couldn't have guessed it if you'd have asked me you know, to, to name 200 films. Three Men and a Baby um, made $167 million at the box office. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I know. Um, so that's the state of film and, and where the franchise is at. But obviously with that, we had to find a new bond. Yeah, and uh, I mean, this came two years after View to a Kill, and Roger had made it. Uh, Roger Moore had made it quite clear that that was going to be his his final Bond mm-hmm. uh, outing, and with probably for good reason. I think it was fifty seven at the time when he made that one, fifty eight, um, and so he was ready to leave, finally leave the series behind, and the hunt began for a new James Bond. Now there were lots of different names that were thrown around at the time. Um, I think MGM, the studio, were quite keen for Mel Gibson to be considered um so could you see mel gibson as bond i, I don't think i could he's, he's no. too too brash yeah uh too uh possibly too short as well um so that was one uh there was lots of other names though in the uh uh in the mix there was this guy finley light who always gets um mentioned when you look at uh, people casting for living daylights some other australians anthony hamilton and andrew clark um there was also um the person that sort of was was really mooted was also sam neil he was uh, a big uh big favorite at the time for this show that he'd made riley ace of spies um but the man who came closest to it and we covered this in great detail in our pierce brosnan episode was pierce brosnan he um was in the frame to play bond um because of his popularity in 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 um uh, what's the show called? Remington Steel. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, he got close to. Uh, they basically got him to uh, agree to, to to do the the job. He got as cl- as close as doing uh, screen tests, and there's photos of him signing his contract at Pinewood uh, with John Glenn. Um, but because of his um, linking with Bond, basically it was leaked by a newspaper. The popularity of the show spiked. <laughs> So although Remington Steel had been cancelled and looked like Pierce Brosnan was going to be able to take the role, the popularity of Remington Steel took a spike and Remington Steel, the network behind it, renewed their option and brought Brosnan back to make um, some more uh, of, of that show. Yeah, annoyingly, and not many. <laughs> not many. Yeah. Well, this this the, uh, Cubby said that he couldn't have his Bond being t- be on TV and in the movies at the same time. So basically... They had to cancel Pierce's uh, Bond deal. Um, he did come back for one series of Remington Steel, which tanked, and that was it. I think it was even just a few episodes, like extended extended length episodes, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Brosnan was out of a job, unfortunately. So they had to um, uh, Bond had to move fast, and they had Living Daylights on the slate, ready to shoot. Casting director Debbie McWilliams at a recent event at the BFI, she said that they she always has to have someone in their back pocket ready to, to move on. 
and Dalton was the man. But we'd they'd spoken to Dalton before, right? Yeah, nineteen sixty nine, I believe, wasn't it? Was on their Majesties Four. that early. On the Majesties, yeah, yeah, that was I think his first brush, and he said he was too young at the time. And yeah. I think, and even I think when you um, if you listen to the commentary for this film. Uh, John Glenn says the same thing. He was too young to be Bond in 1969. Mm. And he also thought actually Pierce Brosnan probably would have turned out to be too young as well in 1987. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dalton was basically drafted in at the very last minute. He had to sort of get dropped into the movie straight away. I think they had to delay it slightly for him to shoot, finish shooting on Brenda Starr. Yeah. But... Um, but yeah, so Dalton was the man uh, to play Bond. Yeah, but you can see uh, Sam Neill's screen test for it on um, the the DVD. He does the From Russia With Love scene, as they always do. So, into pre-production then, director John Glenn returned to direct his fourth Bond film in a row, and he influenced the story directly by, uh, by suggesting Gibraltar as a location for the opening title sequence. He'd recently been on holiday there, um, uh, and and he thought it was a really good idea to have uh, a, a, as a setting for Bond, but with it being you know a part of the British Isles that is out in the middle of nowhere, and he thought it was a good sort of uh, location for it. Uh, it was also his idea to have Bond and Kara escaping in a cello case at one point. This idea was initially shot down by the production team, but um, uh, the story goes that he uh, borrowed a cello case from a rehearsing orchestra to demonstrate it to Cubby and Michael G. Wilson. Who thought actually, you know, it's not too but too uh, crazy of an idea, and that's how we um, convinced them. Um, and in terms of writing the script, there were early plans to set the film in China. Um, that was somewhere they always wanted to shoot. There was talk of doing some stuff on the Great uh, Wall of China, um, but it just proved to be too difficult logistically to shoot uh, over there. The other version of the um, or early version of uh, Living Daylights was a uh, draft of the story, which was going to be a prequel with a young James Bond who was raised by his grandfather. Um, he gets then uh, his grandfather's friend uh, recruits him into the uh, the Secret Service. I think his, his friend is, is M. Um, and then Bond, this young Bond, gets teamed up with the, the older 007 to go on a mission. And obviously they go on the mission, they bond. Bond learns how to be a, a spy and then 007 dies on the mission. So at the end, then Bond assumes the mantle of, uh, of 007. Um, this was cubbied. Uh, this was cubbied. This was vetoed by Cubby um, uh, Broccoli, the producer, who thought that audiences wouldn't want to see Bond as an amateur. But they did screen test a guy, a British actor called Mark Greenstreet, who was in his mid 20s um, because he was quite popular at the time in a series called Brett Farrar. Um, but uh, yeah, that was not to be. But it shows how far they went down that path uh, by doing the screen test for it. So do you think you would have mid 20s Bond would have worked? I think it's more likely to work next time rather than that, yeah. that earlier. I think they would have had, I mean, going from a 58 year old, I think it's a big jump, a big ask. Yeah. So the, the, the Living Daylights itself takes its name from an Ian Fleming short story published uh, with Octopussy in 1966 and it deals with Bond on a mission to stop a KGB assassin from killing an agent. He's got to kill the assassin before the assassin kills the other agent and so he, this sort of story takes place over three nights during which Bond falls in love with a cellist who then turns out to be the KGB assassin that he's there to stop. 
Um, so you can see the seeds of the idea are there in the Fleming story. Um, but the script was written um, by um, Michael G. Wilson um, and Richard Maybaum uh, while they didn't know who Bond was. So they sort of it was sort of written as an in-between sort of bond but when Dalton came in at the last minute they sort of adapted it slightly to suit his style um, and Dalton himself insisted on changes because he wanted to take it back to a more Fleming-esque bond a more gritty uh, bond and you, you sort of see that in the movie mm-hmm. um, and, the, and the script itself it took cues from a number of different things that were happening in the real world at the time one of them being the rise of international arms brokers another one was the instability of the Soviet Union because of their entanglements in Afghanistan. And there was also a couple of major defections going on in the news at the time. Uh, a KGB officer defected to the UK. And there was also this guy called Vitaly Yuchenko, who defected to the US. But while he was um, uh, in the US being debriefed by the CIA, he was feeding them false information. And after he'd done that, he returned to the KGB. So very much like... Um, Koskov in the movie Hmm. Um, and one of the things that the book uh, the film uh, resurrected from the books is the anti-spy network Smirsh who had appeared in some of the earlier Bond books uh, but not so much later once Spectre came on the scene but uh, yeah that's the uh, that's the story anyway yeah so the the crew um, we've got obviously John Glenn back again Um, Christmas 85 he was brought on board and this is fourth consecutive Bond film and uh, he said we constrict ourselves to the star we've created if we did something too different or wrong it would end the series the Bond films tend to offer style which is unique very fast moving through a tremendous amount of scenes we're always looking to film the impossible and we feel we have to do that so it's a trusted pair of hands you know he knows the game he knows the formula um, and this is something we see again where uh, it pushes the boundaries after this, I would say, with License to Kill. But, you know, someone who knows it inside out and has been working on, on the franchise for many, many years. Um, cinematography, we've got Alec Mills again. Someone else who um, has worked on the, the franchise for, for a number of years. And um, he said, I don't think people who go to the cinema realise how vital chemistry is on the floor. It's so important that there be chemistry between the director and the director of photography. John allows me to contribute rather than just be an illuminator. I can tell him my ideas and he'll say, it's bloody awful, or Alec, I like it. I had to hate to be on a film set where I had to sit there like a lemon. Um, It's interesting because you see a lot of interviews around this film and the crew all talk about how much of a team they felt on this. Yeah. Something. I think it's Joe Don Baker on the uh, set uh, on the audio commentary says um, the the Bond films are like a family and they they every year every few years they host a family reunion and then they just make a Bond film while they're doing it. Yeah, <laughs> which I think is a lovely quote. Yeah. Um, so edited by John Grover and Peter Davis, we've got John Barry returning um, for the music as well. Peter Lamont he also returns as the production designer and. Um, Lamont again he talks about the team um, and he said that he loved loved the thrill of being able to do what you can imagine and he said people must never forget all these Bond pictures are a huge team effort we're only as good as one another it's all a big team so 
yeah, I mean, that's that's something that they all talk about. And, you know, a happy team generally leads to, uh, you know, a, a decent film, doesn't it? You know, absolutely. We, it, it, we've seen how the opposite can affect, you know, and then the happy team has, has led to disasters on set. So, yeah, yeah. Um, we have John Richardson in the effects department and uh, Paul Weston is the stunt coordinator with the stunt team being led by BJ Worth and Remy Julien. So loads yeah. of familiar names in, in this one. Yeah, BJ Worth, obviously the the, the skydiving expert and then Remy Julien, the car, the driving yeah. expert there. But um, yeah, I saw Paul Weston doing a uh, Q&A at the Prince Charles um, in the summer. He was just great value. It sounded like he was drafted in like, sort of last minute on this one, and but um, sort of embraced it hmm. with both hands. So... Th- uh, in terms of the um, returning cast, we've got Desmond Llewellyn uh, is back as Q um, uh, on his 13th appearance in the Bond series. He was a huge fan of Timothy Dalton um, being a Welsh a fellow Welshman, of course. Um, and this is where um, the relationship with Q sort of changes. There's a much more avuncular feel from mm. from Llewellyn being the legacy character. Um and uh, Bond is 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 sort of more uh, more more understanding with him, um, and a, a bit more of a, of a of the younger upstart here around the old uh, department head. Yeah, so um, we've got Robert Brown, and he's back in what is his third appearance as M, um, and Admiral Hargreaves. Um, yeah, he, we we've seen him in the Spy Who Loved Me. And um, at the beginning of the film, where Dalton is revealed, um, we see uh, M's little office and the and the plane, the cargo plane, and um, he's got a nice a nice relationship with Bond. I think this time, um, telling him to keep those personal feelings out of the mission, and obviously, moving forward, you know that those that relationship escalates, doesn't it? Yes, it really does. I mean, in the next film, obviously, Licence to Kill, it's uh, it's um, it really comes home, doesn't it, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and we've talked about this idea of M's office being on the back of a plane being absolutely ridiculous, but yeah. uh, it is, it's a moment of pure Bond magic, I think. Yeah. We've got uh, Geoffrey Keane as Frederick Gray, and he's got this... Uh, he's quite interesting in this. He has the scene where he talks about the PM having the guts for garters when they lose Koskov. Um uh, and then also we've got uh, another ally who ally slash enemy who both bows out in this film, Brendan. Yep. So Walter Gotel as uh, General Gogol. Um, you know, sometimes he's antagonist, sometimes ally, ally, sometimes ally, sometimes competitor, and sometimes they collaborate. So um, Pushkin is his replacement as the head of the KGB in this, and but we do get a cameo at the end. Um, as he goes to see Kara's concert with M. Yes, and I think because what Walter Gotel wasn't very well at the time, and they wanted they brought Pushkin in to do some of the more physical yeah. stuff, I guess. Um, so you can sort of see uh, where that, um, yeah, where that is. So uh, in terms of uh, the new cast, um, we've got uh, obviously we've talked about Timothy Dalton as Bond. 
but in terms of the Bond girls, we've got uh, to reflect the, uh, the sort of the growing AIDS epidemic in the real world. It's decided that Bond should be a one woman man in this movie. So we've got Mariam Diabo as Cara Malovi, Koskov's girlfriend and then later Bond's love interest. Uh, Diabo is a British actor. His mother's Georgian and her father was Anglo-Dutch. But she was raised in Paris and Geneva. And I think French is her first language. Um, I've understood. She, she had done a small amount of acting and had actually screen tested to play Polar even over in A View to a Kill. Um, but she'd been called in to by Eon to do some screen tests with potential Bond actors. Um, and she'd gone off to make a movie in Germany, um, which actually got cancelled or they ran out of funding partway through. Um, and the people behind the film sent what they'd um, what they'd filmed to United Artists to um, to try and raise more money, put together a showreel and try and raise more money for the movie. That got the attention of of, of United Artists, who then said maybe this could be the next Bond girl. Um, and then uh, Mariam Diaby bumped into Barbara Broccoli on on a return to the UK, found they hadn't cast the role, and she got the part. Um, one thing that she did. Uh, regret about the movie she said though was the the playboy shoot that she mm. agreed to do for the promotion of the movie which you just couldn't imagine them doing now could you no absolutely not absolutely not um other women in the movie you've got julie t wallace as rizika miklos she's bond's contact in bratislava working on the pipeline uh, she's a fantastic character i think in this and she came to the producer's attention uh, in a eight, 1986 TV program called the the Lives and Loves of a She Devil, which I haven't seen. And that then scene, finally, that, got... I just want to touch on that scene because it's it's brilliant. It's just fantastic, isn't it? You know, it's a it's a nice comedic performance from a um, yes, just brilliant. Uh, it's a it's a Roger Moore esque moment, mm. I think, um, in this movie. But um, I do think it's uh, it's it's very funny. Um, and then finally, you've got a lady called Belle Avery. She plays Linda, the woman on the yacht in Gibraltar. But surprisingly, I, I didn't know this before I was researching it, but she's also dubbed in the movie and you can hear her original voice in the trailer. Um, and I think perhaps it was changed because on the tra- in the trailer, her voice is very English, but in the, um, in the movie itself, it's more sort of continental, I think. Right. Um, so okay. I think that's possibly why they changed it. Um, yeah, still dubbing but, 25 years in. I know, yeah. It's also boring here, Margot. If only I could find a real man. But from a movie which hasn't got many Bond women, this you can't say the same about villains. Absolutely. So, um, Joe Don Baker, uh, he, he'd been seen by the Broccolis in a BBC series called Edge of Darkness in 1985. They loved his performance. They got him on board. He was cast as Brad Whitaker, um, who is a general of his own private army and also a collector of war memorabilia. Um, but he says, when I first arrived in Tangier, I felt a bit like an outsider, but they're all very nice people. And Cubby Broccoli is the father of the family looking after his children. He said about the character that his job was to create the character and make him really dangerous but believable. And the trick to playing the villain is to sit back and think of all the awful things you could be. Let's just say the script might have let him down on that. <laughs> um, I think he's he's much better when he returns in GoldenEye uh, as 
as a different character. Um, then we've got Jerome Crab Crabbe. Is it Crabbe? Jerome Crabbe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was laughing about this because on the uh, um, uh, audio commentary, they call him Jerome Crabbe, and everyone calls him Crabbe. But, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not laughing at the pronunciation. I just think yeah. it's a funny, funny, funny name. Um, so, yeah, he um, he was up for the role of Koskov, and uh, he said he he was called into a meeting at Eon. He said there behind a table was Cubby, cast and director Debbie McWilliams, Barbara Broccoli, and Micah Wilson. It was like appearing in front of a jury. Um, so yeah, he went back to his agent's office and uh, he said, you you have the part. And he said he jumped in the air. He was so overwhelmed because he was such a huge Bond fan ever since they started making the films. Um, he read the script. He thought Koskoff was a wonderful role. And um, he asked John Glenn if he wanted the character to have a really strong Russian accent. And he said, no, no very very light accent um which is why we get the performance we do from him um but best of all we get andreas viznevsky who was an ex-ballet dancer cast as necros who i believe is the only bond villain we've had with his own soundtrack <laughs> yes um the mr ben of bond villains yes he you know he he, he can he can change his accent you know he can he can deliver milk explosive milk <laughs> um yeah and he, and he loves listening to um the pretenders doesn't he who doesn't um so and then just just an, and somebody else was approached to play a small role as a henchman morton harkett the lead vocalist of aha mm-hmm. um he declined because he had a lack of uh, time so he couldn't make that commitment and also said that he felt they only wanted to cast him due to his popularity rather than his acting skills um which quite uh yeah quite bold of him yeah. really to or, or honest of him really mm, absolutely didn't stop madonna did it uh, don't <laughs> <laughs> so what about the allies well, we've got a lot here to go through as well. Um, it's a it's a strong movie for allies. Um, you've got, uh, as already mentioned, Pushkin, John, played by John Reese Davies. At the time, uh, one of his biggest roles was Salah in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I love him in that movie. Uh, he'd also appeared in an Indiana Jones spoof called The King Solomon's Mines, which I haven't seen. Uh, but obviously best known nowadays is probably as Gimli in Lord of the Rings. Um he is uh, was due to possibly returning both License to Kill and Goldeneye, but uh, they that didn't happen in the end. So um, they, he was dropped out of the drafts, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, that's John Reese Davis as Pushkin. Uh, then we've got Art Malik as Cameron Shah, who I think is a is a great addition to this movie. He's mm-hmm. an Oxford educated Mujahideen uh, who Bond meets in the jail cell in Afghanistan. Um, and then obviously teams up to, with him to foil the heroin operation. And he was a bit of a rising star at the time and had appeared in The Jewel and the Crown on TV and also the film A Passage to India. Um, and obviously this was his big audition for True Lies, which would follow in a few years' time and he would get a much bigger role. Uh, of course. But any, yeah, any similarities to a certain Osama Bin Laden are purely coincidental. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we have Thomas Wheatley, not that one as saunders 
Uh, he is head of Section V, uh, which is the Vienna base. And he's in charge of handling Koskov's defection at the start and uh, makes that well known to Bond, doesn't he? Um, yeah. This is my operation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the actor, was, it was a stage actor um, at this point and his biggest screen role before that was uh, as a registrar on TV and the singing detective. Um He's. I believe. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but I believe he'd also had some dealings with the Secret Service himself in his personal or his in his in his career at, at this point. Because I know that they mention it. John Glenn mentions it on the on the audio commentary. Um, so. Ah. Okay. So yeah, he had a sort of an inside in, information there. So he had he had more right than most to play this role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So obviously they relate the relationship with him and Bond in this is is wonderful and as it grows throughout the film um the, the, you know when they first start out there's a dislike Saunders feels like Bond's getting in on his on his patch but obviously Bond's brought in for a reason isn't he you know because he's the man that can kill um and throughout the film their relationship you know it, it blossoms and it's actually one of my favorite relationships with an ally in in the the franchise I think yeah 100 um, percent uh, there's a deleted scene with Saunders as well, um, with the exploding an exploding door cut Saunders in half at the at the fair, and uh, there's a deleted Bond quip about about the um, Saunders needing them needing two stretchers to take him away, um, which better would make be better make that too, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would be quite a cruel moment for this touching like relationships that have blossomed and then him making a quit exactly yeah so i think it's the right thing to do to get rid of that yeah um obviously we've touched on judy t wallace um yeah have we got anyone else any other allies well obviously we've got felix light how could you forget felix lighters in this movie because it's john terry it's john terry (laughs) yes it's probably the he sort of uh the most instantly forgettable Felix Leiter of the whole series. I mean, we did a whole episode on Felix Leiter and even I can't remember much about him, but um, yeah. played by, uh, yeah, John um, Terry from Hawk the Slayer and um, obviously made such a big impression. They swapped him for David Hedison in the very next, in the in the very next movie, mm. uh, Live and Let Die. So there's that. Um, but finally, Miss Moneypenny, worth mentioning here because we've got a whole new Miss Moneypenny here in the shape of Caroline Bliss. Again, we did a whole episode on Money Penny, so go back there if you want to learn more about Caroline Bliss. But I think she's interesting in this. She was only 26 when she took this role, um, and um, she has that whole sort of come to my house and listen to Barry Manilow collection thing, um, which is, yeah, a, bit, a little bit cringy, but quite like sweet in a way. Yeah, um, it but dates also the film, though. That's what I was saying. It does date the film, yeah. And there's also that awful sort of sound effect of Bond tapping her on the bum as well, which... Um, awful. It doesn't need to be in there. Yeah. Don't think you'll get away with that nowadays. No. But that's it. Uh, yes, Caroline Bliss. So um, let's dive into production. And the first place to go to is Gibraltar. And the principal product photography begins there in September and it's 17 days before Timothy Dalton is even able to join them to shoot. So uh, they start cracking with some of the second unit stuff. Um, 
and as mentioned before, BJ Worth uh, led the uh, skydiving team with Jake Lombard to do the jump onto Gibraltar. They jumped out of the plane, the Hercules. That wasn't the problem for them. They said it was landing in what BJ Worth described as extremely hazardous locations. And when you watch it uh, in the movie, you can see what they mean. It's like the place is littered with trees and uh, lampposts and telegraph poles and all that sort of stuff. So it is quite incredible, mm. really. They did look at using cranes to lower people down, but they just felt like the results wouldn't be good enough. So they did it for real. Um, and they actually managed to shoot all the landings of all three double O agents all in one day. Amazingly. Um, so, uh, but that stuff really, really works. It looks incredible yeah. uh, when you see it in the movie. Uh, one of the parts that caused some uh, issues was the landing of, or, or, or the, the Land Rover that gets shot off the cliff. They um, took one out to the Mojave, Deva, Mojave Desert and dropped it out of a helicopter to see what would happen. Um, but unfortunately, the parachutes got wrapped up in the car and it just landed on the desert floor and it was flat as a pancake. <laughs> it was ridiculous. So they went to plan B, which was to launch the Land Rover off Beachy Head with an air cannon. And they used a remote control parachute to launch the dummy out of the back of it and then exploded the car midair. And that's what you see in the film. And it's quite an incredible use of uh, miniatures and models mm -hmm. and, and, and practical effects on that. So Dalton finished shooting Brenda Starr in America on the Saturday, flew to England on the Sunday and started shooting Bond on the Monday and flew out to join second unit in Gibraltar a few days later after shooting his first scenes at Pinewood. And there he earned his reputation for being someone to throw himself into the stunt work. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba -ba. Um, so he shot the scene on top of the Jeep for real. 
uh, despite Cubby's best warnings not to damage his leading man just as he starts work. Um, but Paul Weston, the stunt uh, coordinator, he really praised uh, Dalton's bravery and courage for doing it. And it shows in the movie that that car is moving fast. They are steep drops. So I really think, you know, Dalton's really putting Roger Moore to shame there, you know, um, well, straight away. Especially from the stunts, the stark contrast in stunts in uh, View yeah. to a Kill, where it's Absolutely, blindingly yeah. obvious. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the opening, uh, the the... The, the 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 exercise was filmed mostly on the upper rock in Gibraltar, um, and there's a little bit of trivia there. Ooh, a little bit of trivia here about the uh, the aircraft. It was a marked as a Royal Air Royal Air Force aircraft, but the Hercules that they used was actually a Spanish Air Force plane, and then they actually reused that plane later in the Afghanistan sequences, but this time with Russian markings. So off to Austria. And in October 1986, they uh, got there and this doubled for Czechoslovakia in the film. So heavily leaned on Austria for that. Um, the first unit started shooting with Andreas Wisniewski and the stuntman um, Paul Weston. And during the course of uh, three days, it took them to film their fight. Weston actually fractured a finger and Wisniewski knocked him out. So uh, very full on throwing themselves into that. Um, the Bratislavan sequences, they were shot in Vienna. Um, the outside shots of the concert hall, um, the Vol- Volskolpa one and the interior, in the interior were shot at Sofia and Saale. Um, so really using Vienna here um which is and it really yeah it really shows i think it brings a real sort of euro thriller vibe to the movie yeah something that we'd later see in uh born the born film absolutely um so the tram scene that was also that was shot in viring in vienna and the border chase that was filmed in corinthia uh, which is in austria also Um, and then we see the finale of the film at Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna. So um, the amusement park, Prater Amusement Park, um, which is in Austria. Um, and that's where they, the one of the deleted scenes with uh, Saunders was shot as well. And also where we see Saunders' demise at the fair with the balloons. And yeah, John Glenn talks about that being a tribute to the third man, the uh, Carol Reed film, because mm-hmm. it was one of his favourites. I think he'd worked on it, in fact. It was one of his first films that he'd worked on. Yeah, um, it's a nice nod. So he wanted it, to, yeah, a little homage to that. I know that's sort of a big part of the third man, isn't it? Yeah. So um, now big return here in uh, Living Daylights. Another one of those sort of uh, key elements that makes it feel like a classic Bond film is the Aston Martin returns uh, in this movie. So it's the first time an Aston, a, a new Aston Martin has appeared in the Bond movie since Honor Majesty's Secret Service. A big gap. Mm. And obviously I think the company, Aston Martin, was by all accounts sort of very eager to renew uh, their association with um, the series. Uh, they... Uh, Cubby and Michael Wilson took the Aston, the, the new Aston Martin V8 Vantage Volante for a drive and there and then agreed that they wanted it in the movie. So Aston Martin actually had a two year waiting list for the car, um, but the producers requested that they make it ready in six weeks. Um, 
anything for Cubby. Peter Le- uh, yeah, anything for Cubby. Uh, Pete Lamont said that they provided many hard top Volantes, uh, but the rush was such that the open top version um, w- was actually borrowed from Victor Gauntlet, who was the boss of Aston Martin at the time, and rushed out to Vienna for them. Wow. Uh, which is kind of crazy, really. Yeah. Um, which is something that I think happens again on uh, Spy Love Me. We'll, we'll speak about that uh, in a few weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love this car. It's obviously tricked out with all the gadgets as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's. I think for me, it's probably the the third most iconic Bond car behind the DB5, behind the Lotus Esprit. Um, I think it's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. I really like the, uh, the, the laser where it saws yes. the top of the car off the other car. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got the cello stunt. Now, uh, those scenes, like I said, were shot in Bratislava primarily. That's where Bond picks up Kara. Uh, and then they have that argument about the cello, the Stradivarius. Um, another nice comedic moment. I think he plays that well. Um, Lovely, yeah. He loses the argument and uh, they go they go and get it. Um so yeah, the the Czech police and the KGB they chase Bond, and um, this is where we see the gadgets that are in, in the Aston Martin um, while they're on the way to the border. So the the skis, the rocket booster, um, missiles, and obviously those laser hubcaps, which are one of my favourites, I think. Um, yeah, and then a, a self destruct system as well, which uh, which they use when they jump into the cello case instead. So at the end of the sequence, um, John Glenn came up with the cello case toboggan stunt, and he had to demonstrate that it would work physically before Cubby approved it. So when filming came, it took three days to shoot, and Marion Darbo found it particularly stressful. And she said there that uh, they had no... They had placed little explosives under the snow... So it looked like they were shooting at us. I have a phobia of big bangs, guns and explosions. So she wore a Walkman to block out the sounds um, of the desert finale, but unfortunately was unable to do it for this bit. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's a silly action sequence, isn't it? But yeah. um, it's it sort of just about gets away with it. Mm. Um, I believe Timothy Dalton threw the, the, the cello himself in that final bit where he throws over the thing. Um, we have nothing to cl- declare but this cello. <laughs> um, it's a it's a silly old moment, isn't it? It is, it is. But it's it's created wonderfully by somebody in Lego form, isn't it? Online. On oh YouTube. yes, yeah, that's, that is that, great. That's well well worth a look. Yeah. So to Morocco, the shoot moved to Morocco in October '86 to shoot the scenes set in Tangier, uh, which also um, and, and scenes in Morocco also doubled for Afghanistan. Um, and the Afghanistan, the, the Afghan castle is actually a fortress in the centre of Morocco. It's it's in the Kasbah of Tamdakt in the eastern edges of the High Atlas. Um, and the town close by is called Urzazati, and they uh, they call it Uliwood, uh, the locals do, because it, they, it's a home to many, many film shoots, including Lawrence of Arabia mm. and Gladiator. So the uh, the villa of, of Brad Whitaker uh, is actually a place called the Forbes Museum at the time. Um, which was in um, Palace El Mendoub uh, in Tangier. 
uh, obviously for the exterior and the interiors were recreated in Pinewood. But at the time it was being used as a as a model, as a as a museum that ha had a collection of toy soldiers. So they took that idea and put it in the movie, which I thought was quite uh, quite amazing. Oh. And one other amazing thing they shot in Morocco that didn't make it into the movie was this infamous flying carpet deleted scene, which was a John Glenn devised moment. Have you seen this, Brendan? I have. Yeah. Mm. So you see while they're making, while Bond's sort of escaping in Tangier, he takes a magic carpet ride, which involves taking a carpet and draping it over some wires between buildings and then sliding down it. And there's even a couple of natives looking on incredulously as it slides past and they're smoking a, a shisha pipe saying, I told you this stuff was good when it when it goes pack, when it goes past. It is absolutely rubbish. It's so slow. Even John Glenn at the time said it just didn't work. It just like the, the carpet doesn't look real. It went too slowly. Um, so, yeah, luckily that was that was axed. Yeah, it's something I can imagine Roger Moore doing. Again, yeah, could, probably would have been uh, fine with him. Um, so the air stunt that, uh, at the end of the film, um, like you said uh, before, the aircraft belang belonged to the Spanish Air Force. Um, so during this, we have a fight that breaks out on the open ramp of the aircraft while it's in flight between Bond and Necros, uh, leading to Necros falling to his death. Now, B.J. Worth um, and his colleague uh, Lombard. What's Lombard's first name? Do you know? Uh, Jake. Jake Lombard. They double for Bond and Necross uh, in those scenes where they're hanging and fighting on, on the bag um, in the plane's open cargo door. So the exterior shots filmed over the Mojave Desert. And uh, Peter Lamont said about this air stunt, I suppose our biggest chore was to build a complete Hercules interior with an executive cabin that had removable bulkheads. We built the cockpit, the whole cargo bay and the exterior around the cargo bay. The cargo door worked. We also built the exterior of the flight deck. We built the whole thing on sea stage on an all-way rocker. Um, he said it looked quite good and it they cut it in with the work that the aerial unit did. He said, to the credit of the editors and the director, I defy anybody to say actually how we did it, what kind of process we used. I will say this, it was done real for real, in the studio and in the air. And Yeah, and it's a stunning set piece. It's absolutely fantastic. You know, um, the, the the way they fused it together is, is, is great. But remember those stunt guys, they're actually up there and on yeah. those long shots. And that's... That's amazing, isn't it? Um, and then to splice it with the the stuff that they shot at a Pinewood, and really make yeah, it, I mean, it, I really, really, really interiors of the interiors of the plane looks real to me. Yeah, it's it's fantastic, isn't it? Um, mm. Especially with the way that they've shot it out with the view outside of the plane, um, you totally buy that they're thousands of feet in the air. Yeah. Mm. So then to Pinewood uh, in December 86, you've got uh, a bunch of th stuff that's shot there. Accused Workshop, um, apparently they had 12, uh, the, the video screen was uh, screens provided by Philips. Uh, one of the things that happened there uh, while they were shooting at Pinewood was the Prince and Princess of Wales visited the 007 stage to watch filming being um, 
done. Um, and Caroline Bliss um, had actually played Diana in a film not really not long before that, so it must have been a bit weird. Wow. Um, but Jerome Crabbe, while they were there, suggested that Diana should break uh, the, one of the prop bottles over Prince Charles' head, and the photo made headlines around the world. You could not buy that kind of publicity and mm-hmm. you can just watch Jerome Crabbe while it's happening and he's just laughing his head off <laughs> between the two of them it's absolutely brilliant um and then as mentioned we had the the Land Rover that was shot at Beachy Head itself um and then there were some other locations across the UK as well yep so they used the south side of Trafalgar Square for the new Universal Exports building that's where where Q's workshop is located um Necross, uh, the, where he strangles the milkman at White, Palm, White Pond Farm in Henley-on-Thames. And um, the exterior of Stoner House in Oxfordshire, that doubles as a safe house that uh, gets absolutely destroyed when they go and pick up Koskov. Um, yeah. Then we've got uh, the fight between Necross and MI6 agent. That was shot at Pinewood. Um, and then, of course, we've also got that that final air stunt was at Pinewood as well. Yeah, um, and all the interiors as well. I guess like the the tents yes, in, in, of course. in Afghanistan and the and the prison, all that sort of stuff was there as well. Yeah, um, and then filming wraps February nineteen eighty seven. Yeah, so three months there at um, at Pinewood. Mm. Coffee, medium sweet. Two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? So let's talk about the music. Uh, this was John Barry, uh, his final Bond score. He returned for his 11th and final James Bond score. And he was fresh uh, on the job from winning his fourth Oscar for Born Free. He had, had been working um, at this point uh, in uh, on the film The Golden Child, the Eddie Murphy movie, um, which... I've been I've been listening to it on YouTube actually because it turns out the John Barry score for the Golden Child actually was not used in the movie. Uh, it was um, it was abandoned in favour of a much more eighty sounding score. But you can listen to it, and some people say it's like Barry's lost Bond score, and mm. you can you could imagine it. It's well worth checking out. Um, but Barry included lots of cello pieces for uh, um, Mariam Diaby's character to play because she's a cello player and so Mariam took a month's worth of cello lessons in order to look like she could play it for herself and famously John Barry also cameos in the film conducting an orchestra Um, talking about it later John Glenn said it was very unusual for John unlike a lot of other people who like to appear in movies John had never asked before but on that film he asked if he could appear at the time it struck me as a bit strange it was almost a premonition that this was going to be his last bond i was happy to accommodate him and he was eminently qualified to do so uh, uh mariam diabo talked about socializing a lot with john barry while they were shooting in london and then for, for the score itself uh he wrote 57 minutes of music for the film in just four weeks 
and actually it's quite significant this movie is that there's, there's a lot of synthesizer dri driven rhythm tracks within it um, that's the first uh, for a Bond film um, Barry worked with an engineer producer called Paul Stavely O'Duffy who actually received a co-producing credit on the film with, with Barry um, and he helped a lot with the synthesizer stuff um, and he sort of just felt it brought a lot of energy and impact to the score and I think it really does mm. Yeah. Uh, it was recorded in May 1987 with an orchestra of 70 and it would be, like I said, John Barry's final Bond score. In an interview, he said, I'm not going to go through this again. That was the end of it. And in another interview, he said, it's lost its natural energy. It just start, start, it started to be just formula. And once that happens, the work gets really hard. The spontaneity and excitement of the original scores is gone. So you move on. And he said goodbye in a classic John Barry style, complete class and um, distinction, he took out a full page advert in Variety to salute quarter century of Bond uh, in the cinema. He said, congratulations, Cubby. It's been a great 25 years. Your friend, John Barry. So signing off in style. Um, but I think one of the reasons why he wanted to leave at this point was to do with some of the so one of the songs, at least one of the songs that he wrote, co-wrote for the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, remember, he had had problems with the previous uh, the previous film as well with Duran Duran, if you remember. It yeah. didn't work that well together. Uh, so in this one, The Living Daylights, it's co-written by Paul Vakhtar of uh, AHA. And they, they also recorded it. And uh, John Glenn said that Barbara Broccoli was really in touch with the current music scene. And so was Cubby Broccoli, funnily enough. Barbara came up with the idea of Aha and she dragged us to see him, see them at some venue in Croydon. There were all these 15-year-old girls, girls screaming. The kids loved them. Um, something they've always carried on. I think Barbara's always picking the latest pop sensation um, yeah. right up to No Time to Die. So, um, yeah, in terms of writing and collaborating, it didn't work out. And um, Paul Vactor said, uh, we we're in the middle of doing our second album. So we were busy doing other stuff and uh, we had different working methods. So we came across a little too efficient. We were like, OK, we've just got to get this done. Uh, and we didn't want to cancel a show to go to the premiere. So there were certain things like that that rubbed him the wrong way. Um, so he handed them a version of the song and they felt there was a note that was wrong uh, in the string arrangements. And so they fixed it. And obviously John Barry wasn't a fan of, of that. You know, <laughs> they've just gone in and butchered his work uh, in his eyes. Um, but he l later on, he does admit, he said, I, I do think he did a great job. It was a fantastic string score. We just had one chord in the middle that was important to us. That was changed and stuff like that happens. Maybe I've dulled over the years. Um, but he, yeah, he, he praises what John Barry did with the song basically now. Um, so there's two different, there's two different versions that are very minimal in difference. And so you hear John Barry's version on the official soundtrack and then Aha's version in um, one of Aha's compilation albums headlines right and deadlines um so yeah like they said you know they've looked back and uh, seen that 
he was, you know, he knew what he was doing, didn't he, John Barry? Yeah. Um. So yeah, but there were more songs in this one. So we had songs over the opening, obviously, but also at the end. So at the end of the film, we have "If There Was a Man," which was also uh, the love film of the theme of the film that goes throughout uh, the score. Uh, and it was one of the songs, one of the two songs for the film that was by Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders, who John Barry did enjoy working with. So there, there was a, a positive story in this as well. Um, but the other song, Where Has Everybody Gone? That's Necross's unofficial uh, theme that he yeah. listens to on his Walkman, um, which they use every time Necro- when Necross attacks. And there's also the instrumental that is part of the soundtrack um, especially when they play, uh, when Necross and Agent Green have a fight at the safe house. Um, and again, when they f- uh, Bond and Necross fight on the cargo plane. Uh, and the Pretenders were originally considered to perform the title song. So had that have happened, who knows? Maybe we would have got another John Barry. Hmm. Who knows? So the titles... Morris Binder's back doing his titles. Uh, obviously, would be his penultimate one. Uh, you've got the naked women wearing aviator sunglasses, very Top Gun uh, reminiscent uh, with the film coming out a year after the Tom Cruise film. You've got, obviously, the, the standard sort of silhouettes of women um, being carried off by Bond. You've got laser-projected 007 logos. Uh, you've got smoke and water motif. It's, to be honest, I think Binder's phoning in a little bit mm. on, on this one. Yeah. Um, but according to his editor, Peter Davies, Binder had spent as long making the titles on the film as they did actually making the film itself. And then uh, there you had uh, there was like a, a children's paddling pool full of water was used to make the rippling effects. Um, but yeah, and it, I want a small thing to note. You've got optical uh, cameraman Alan Church. He his hands are in the film. He's the guy's. It's his hand that fires the gun in the first shot. Um because Morris Binder noticed he had very small hands. So that was uh, that was him being used in that. So we've got posters, and I think this one has to be the last great of the classic style mm. Bond posters. In fact, it's the very last of the hand-painted Bond posters. Uh, the quad, the main quad was painted by Brian Bysouth. He's got Bond in his tuxedo in the middle of a gun barrel pointing the gun and it's surrounded by glimpses of a lot of the action set pieces like the Aston Martin, the bridge explosion, the horse riding, the parachuting, all that sort of stuff. Um, it's just one of the all-time great uh, movie, uh, yeah. not just Bond posters, but movie posters, I think. Um, and there were a few other um, uh, teasers to mention. You've got that interesting one, which is a US Advance teaser, which has the grill of the DB5 with the 007 license plate. Mm, Obviously yeah. quite interesting because the DB5 is not in it. Yeah. And then you've got the, the the quad teaser with Dalton and his gun and the tagline, James Bond 007A is most dangerous. And that was something they really hammered home in the movie. This was a new harder edged Bond. Um, and then you've also got the one where you've got uh, Dalton um, in a blue blue gun barrel with a silhouetted woman holding a pistol with a silencer at her side. And that's more sort of a classic sort of style Bond, almost like Fiore's only mm. influenced uh, one there. Um. So with this one, we've got something a bit different because we've got a leak of the work print of the film. Um, in 1987, in April, um, 
yeah, the, it, it got out and there was a version of the film that was going around and includes an alternative gun barrel. And uh, I implore you to seek this out because Dalton walks in and, and jumps and shoots. It's strange. It's a strange gun barrel. Um, it had an extended briefing scene with M um, and the Q branch. We also get a, a sequence where there's a, a, a quill pen, a ceremonial quill pen that transmits what it writes Um which I think is something that exists now, isn't it? Like isn't the Apple Pen. Apple Pen. Yeah, I do think that. it probably does. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this was considered a major security breach, um, with you know the the co-editors uh, would be under suspicion to have leaked this, but um, it transpired that the post-production facility that was in charge of uh, protecting the data. They'd been really lax with the security, so somehow it had gone out. Um, but it's not something we've seen before or since, is it? I don't think a leak. No, not that I can think of. Obviously, the closest we came to was Spectre, the script leaking, but um, I've never, I don't recall a, the the movie being leaked yeah. itself. So let's talk about uh, the premiere. So the film's. Um, uh, obviously, it came out in the Silver Jubilee of the of the franchise in the film uh, on the 29th of June, 1987. The world uh, royal premiere happened at Odeon Leicester Square. Prince and Princess, Prince and Princess of Wales were there. Um, and Leicester Square was na- renamed James Bond Square for the day. Street signs changed everything. And obviously a huge poster up in there. Um and then there was the V8 Volante was outside and then Dalton stunt double Simon Crane upsailed down the building dressed as Bond before on the TV special. It uh, he actually became Bond. So it was made to look like Dalton had parachuted down. Um, and Desmond Llewellyn was there as well in Leicester Square and he demonstrated the the, um, the car to uh, Charles and Diana, apparently. Mm. Um, so, yes. So what about the reviews? Um, so the press had seen the film in the mor- in that morning and the reviews were generally positive and they're quite enthusiastic about this return to a slightly more serious tone. Uh, in Time Out, Brian Case said, this is the best Bond in years. And Paulie McLeod said, it's a terrific roller coaster of fun and excitement. That was in the Daily Mirror. Um and then Raymond Dergner in the BFI's monthly film bulletin said, the film is essentially an action circus. Um, Douglas Fairbank's swashbuckle update by secret agent costume and sex with everything. But he also noted that the series was starting to look slightly dated next to Indiana Jones. Um, yeah, Starburst magazine, Gary Russell, he said it was one of the very best Bond films. And yeah. he... He he said that Dalton was actually one of the uh, was the best of the four Bond actors to date, and he said the Living Daylights has paved the way for a further twenty five years of good James Bond films, and that is largely due to Timothy Dalton, who deserves as much credit as possible. Yeah, it looks like the Daily Telegraph was quite uh, keen on Dalton as well. They called him 
uh, kinder, more human, charming and low profile Bond. Um, but uh, Alexander Walker of the Evening Standard said Cubby Broccoli and his associates to start the think tank going for f- for the film after this and decide what kind of Bond they want for at the moment. They haven't got one. Ooh. Mm. Um, in terms of, I mean, in retrospect reviews, it's gone up a, a bit in the rankings. Mm. It's, uh, you know, it's it sort of seems to have gained a better reputation since then. Uh, but the the release, it was a limited release uh, from 30th of June, starting on 18 screens and expanding to 131 screens by its fourth week. And it topped the UK chart throughout July and August. And it was toppled six weeks later by Lethal Weapon. It grossed 8.2 million in the UK. Um uh, and took $191.2 million total in the, glo- globally. Um, so it opened in the US on uh, 31st of July and was the box office was a bit of an uptick from the Roger Moore era. Um, 40 million more than A View to a Kill. And um, yeah, so it was pretty, pretty, pretty big. Did it win any awards? Uh, it, it did. It won Best Sound Editing from the Motion Picture Sound Editors Guild of America in 1988. Um, and that was due to the authentic sound effects of the skirmish at the end, which was recorded in a separate studio and dubbed over it. Hmm. Yeah. So at this point, as we always do, we look at our three word reviews from our listeners and our followers on Twitter. We put these out and you reply with your replies, uh, your three word reviews. Interestingly, we got a response this week from Don Mancini, the creator of the Child's Play uh, movies. Ah. So thanks for listening, Don. Uh, He said The Lady Rose, which is less of a review, more of a inventory, but I'll take it. (laughs) Uh, our friends at MI6 HQ, they said parachuted in literally. Obviously, that's a reference to Dalton. Um, Gary Hamilton went for more, uh, to the point, bloody excellent film. Uh, Gig Goer said absolutely superb Bond. Stag Stackabo, top-notch Bond. Um, Gareth J. Lewis, he agrees with us, keeps getting better. So mm. this is one that, uh, yeah, yeah uh, we, we both agree with that on. Um, Scott Wagner says moves engaging exciting uh, which I think is quite good and the first run says best 80s bond where do you stand on that Brendan best 80s bond well yeah I would have said you know a year ago that would have been license to kill but like we keep saying the more I see this film the more I really enjoy it and and you know bloody excellent movie is uh it's definitely one I agree with as well. Um, it's 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 tough between those two. I think at the moment this one slightly edges it. What about you? Well, I still I'm still a, a huge fan of License to Kill. I think it's the more pure of the two films. Um, I think there's not much between them, but I do really love the the exoticism of of License to Kill over the sort of the, mm-hmm. the sort of the Euro vibe of this one. So I think for that reason, I think that License to Kill still sort of edges it for me. Um, just going to throw in a couple more three-word reviews here before we wrap up. Cool Zombie, on the flip side, said bloody awful film. So wow, there you go. Sally Hughes, though, this is probably my favourite. Dalton is delicious. <laughs> Isn't he just? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't he just? Isn't he just? Um, and then Christopher Zabelli, Dalton, Timothy Dalton. I mean... Let's start with Dalton, I guess. I mean, mm. in terms of like, 
the the film's legacy and reputation now dalton i think is is agreed by most hardcore fans to be up there as as the best of the bonds right i i would say so yeah and i, I yeah. think i think wider on the, you know an audience that what is wider than just maybe just bond fans um he is quite forgotten i would say mm. and and it's very unjust because um you give him give him your time he proves to be a an excellent bond yeah i think just general lack of visibility there's only two films in in, in his mm-hmm. canon uh in, yeah. in the series and so if you're gonna switch on itv2 if you're gonna switch on a bond film it, the odds are stacked against dalton unfortunately yeah. it's more likely to be a roger it's then more likely to be um uh, uh a sean connery film and then actually most likely it's going to be skyfall <laughs> um on itv2 because yeah. they show that every week by the looks of it um, so Dalton unfortunately just doesn't get the look in, but I think now uh, with the sort of the, the the Daniel Craig era, I think the Dalton films are getting more reappraised, mm-hmm. and hopefully that will spread out to the to the general public as well, and they'll sort of recognise him. Um, yeah, because you know without Dalton's portrayal, who knows we we would never have got the Daniel Craig films and the, and the way that he portrayed it, because you know he, he laid the groundwork, didn't he? Yeah, I can't remember who said it. Someone much cleverer than me, but they said um, Timothy Dalton ran so Daniel Craig could walk. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> I think it's quite funny. Yeah. Um, but also, anecdotally speaking, as well, I think uh, um, Dalton is very popular with with female audiences as well because he is much more dashing, mm. perhaps, than the other. Uh, you know, he's more of a Heathcliff type, isn't he? And yeah, obviously, famously played Heathcliff as well. Um, just a, obviously, just a shame we didn't get any more of uh, any more movies from him. No, there. Is, but but you know, we, there's got that great the great book by Mark Edlitz. Um, yeah. So we we can at least see where it could have gone. Um, yeah. If you haven't read that one, by the way, Mark Edlitz's book. I can't remember. What it's called the Many Adventures or Many Lives of James Bond. It details what Dalton's third and fourth movie would have been like. So uh, well worth checking out. So just to say a couple of thank yous before we wrap up. Thank you very much to Mark Harrison, who was hopefully meant to be here, but wasn't able to, but shared his notes nonetheless. And also Neil Orcock, who we are meant to record this episode with, and we suffered some more technical issues. So uh, thank you both for contributing to this. But it was just me and you in the end. It was, yeah. And and if you listen to this, finally it managed to get recorded and it's out there somehow. Yes, somehow. <laughs> somehow but if people want to get in touch with the show brendan how do they find us on social media at james bond a to z on facebook instagram and twitter and if you want to email the show you can email us at podcast at james bond a to z uk please do we always love receiving your emails if you haven't emailed us before then i generally reply with an offer of a podcast sticker they are still very much available so if you want to email the show with anything then feel free to do so um So on that note, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week with The Man with the Golden Gun. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy. With music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You'd better hurry. M wants you to stop at Harrods on your way and pick up a parcel. Money, Penny, be a dear. 
Ask Records to monitor check publication and news services for me. See if they can find any mention of a woman cellist at the Conservatoire in Bratislava. I didn't know you were such a music lover, James. Any time you want to drop by and listen to my Barry Manilow collection. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.